This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It is Thursday, which means it's time for the front three with me, Adam Bolt, with the one and the only Lawrence McKenna. Champions League is coming to an end. It's good. It is indeed. And of course, the man, the myth, the legend, Chris Hennage, all the way from the United States. Good evening, good afternoon, good morning. Ooh. Good night. Good night as well. Uh, how's the uh, how's the Americans treating you out there, Chris? It's good. We're all, we're all preparing to give thanks tomorrow for uh, for everything that we're fortunate for. Yeah, what are you thankful for, Rafa Benitez? Uh, I was thinking about that today, actually. Um, no, I'll save it for Twitter, actually. It's quite sentimental. <laughs> You'll save it for Twitter. Okay, okay. That's a plug yeah. for his Twitter, guys. Go and follow K Hennage on Twitter. I was yeah. essentially going to say that um, I'm thankful for the fact that I can make a living from writing and viewing football. I mean, that's a great... That's a very wonderful thing to be thankful for i mean i thought you were going to say me and lawrence personally you're thankful that we're in your lives but i mean it's cool you know well i, I think fine, in mate. many ways you're encapsulated in that that's the, that's the beauty it. of it you see because it's if all you think encompassing about it, if, if you think about it i mean i mean look to be to, to digress very briefly there was a day when this brought absolutely no money into my bank account now thankfully i can consider it a full-time profession and have done for a few years and on top of that all thanks it's to the front three. Me, it's, well, this is the thing. It's brought me to, to places like where I am now, but also, you know, it's it's taken me down to London and tell me meet guys like yourselves. It's um, it's very much a ubiquitous force in my life that has, has brought me a lot of great things. So I'm very blessed to have it. Lawrence, what are you uh, what are you thankful for? Um, I'm definitely thankful for Adam Boltwood. Um, Thank you. Just his preeminent uh, mm. predisposition in Thank you. life. Uh, I'm thankful for what? Am, what am I actually thankful? For? Thank you. Thankful. It's, a, it's an interesting. Uh, I, I was trying, trying to think of base things because I feel like it's a. It's probably you know like I'm, I'm obviously thankful for a lot of things in my life. You know, love all those lovely things. Um, it's my anniversary week. Um, oh, and then anniversary. And it's fourth anniversary. Um, and then we've known each other longer than four years. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, and then what I was actually going to say, I'm thankful for Rafa Benitez as well. And Jurgen Klopp. Yes. And I'm thankful for Monaco. What a great football team. Yeah, we'll, we'll come on to that. We will come on to that. Um, Does anyone else think that um, re- there's the, the American uh, stuff is a little bit, that what's going on with the president is a little bit like uh, Newcastle United? Um, and their managers slash management. So you could either compare Donald Trump to Mike Ashley or you could compare him to Alan Pardew, at which point... That means that there's a Rafa Benitez coming in in the United States sometime soon. Kanye 2020, eh? Um, guys, let's get oh, in. No, no, Trump says he's going to be an eight-year president, mate. Did you not see that? Yeah, I mean, we can't always get what we want, as Donald Trump's campaign themes have said. <laughs> yeah, as uh, <laughs> Anyway, guys, we are, of course, here tonight to talk our UEFA Champions League reaction. Uh, in part two, we'll be talking Jurgen Klinsmann, parting ways with the US men's national team and a little something new for part three of the Thursday podcast is any other business a section where we'll be able to talk about the things we just can't stop thinking about or want to get off our chest with regards to the beautiful game first up though let's dial up Dave who is a parkhead tonight Dave on the line from Scotland. Dave, how was the game? Brave Celtic nil, Barcelona two. Yeah, it's a good game of football. Barcelona, you know, were clinical in the final third. They took the chances. Celtic though played quite well. You know, credit to Brendan Rodgers. Now he sat on the side. Originally though, he didn't change it, and that was a big thing. Uh, Barcelona were they, they looked very open. They looked far too open. They're defending with seven, attacking with three. With Leo leaving the likes of Messi, Suarez, and Neymar up top, and. Celtic, if they use their full-backs properly, potentially could have got a shock result. And of course, you got to see Messi. You, you could take that off the bucket list. Messi scoring twice. Seen before, mate. Oh, I can take it off now. A, a penalty and a goal. A really good goal as well. You know, the, the, the ball from Neymar was nice. Messi's first touch was, as always, ex- absolutely exquisite. And then he just slid the ball into the back of that. And it was, it was impressive. Messi was really good. He was picking up areas of, of space that, you know, you, know, you expect to see sort of uh, inside right forward to, to pick up. But, it's what Messi does when he's got the ball. He, he just injects pace into the game, whether he picks up and goes on a run or he, he plays an inside to pass and gets the move ball forward. You know, they play it inside to him if he's, you know, Barca defending the break and he'll, he'll play the pass back to the fullback and it'll just break the lines of the opposition defence. And there you go, the team's counter-attacking. Uh, but it was a, you know, a very interesting game in terms of the Barca midfield. I don't think they played very well in terms of the shape. It was quite poor. Rakitic was defensively, defensively was very good. He was covering Messi very well, but when he had the ball, he didn't do enough with it. And similar with uh, Gomez on the other side. They really lacked Andres Iniesta. Obviously, it's, any team is going to lack Andres Iniesta, but it really showed tonight. Barcelona obviously now finishing top of Group C. I mean, based on what you've seen tonight and from Barcelona in the competition, do you think uh, they've got a chance of winning back the Champions League? I don't think so, no. I think they're, they're too disjoint. I think there's a real dysfunction in how they defend. I think they, they press well high. Um, but if you get past that first line of pressure, you know, the, the MSN, if you get past that line of pressure, you really have a, have a team to, to pull to the side. You know, you pull it to one side, then switch it to the other. There's a real weakness there. Um, PK started very well, but then there were moments where uh, Moussa Dembele got the better of him. You know, signed inside. Moussa Dembele probably should have scored twice. The game probably should have finished 2-2 if he'd taken his chances. But again, not clinical enough in front of goal. You've got to expect that from a young forward. But, you know, you come against the bigger teams, the likes of Atletico, the likes of uh, Bayern Munich, Real Madrid, they'll just expose you if Barcelona play this way. You know, imagine that Real Madrid team that was so poor for me at the weekend. They beat Atletico 3-0. 
they came up against this this Barca team. They just pull them pull them to the side. They like the Marcelo. They like the Carvalho get forward, and they cause problems. And that's Barcelona's you know problem with having Neymar having a bit of an ego. You know the reason why they won the Champions League was because Neymar's ego was out the place. He was playing as a wide forward and he was defending well. You know joining the the midfield three to make a four, and he wasn't doing that at all tonight. And he didn't do that last season. They got beat. You know the, the Arsenal game was the big one last season where you could you could see that 100 percent of the time that Neymar just wasn't working. And he hasn't learned his lesson, and unfortunately, Barcelona won't win the Champions League this season. Um, obviously, Celtic uh, knocked out of the competition. No more European football for them, and not even the Europa League. But what did you make of um, Moussa Dembele, the man of the moment? I mean, a lot of them made before the game about how he, Roger, and Sinclair have scored more goals than the MSN before this game. I mean, obviously, he missed that big chance <laughs> before Messi scored the penalty. Yeah, I think he missed, he missed two big chances. Maybe he should have put away. But again, like I mentioned before, he's a young forward. The player that I'd say was a standout for, uh, for Celtic was Scott Brown, to be quite honest. You know, a, a very basic uh, midfielder uh, in terms of what he does. He, he's very simple. He keeps the ball in possession very, very well, but he's aggressive. And that was the key thing. He was playing defensive midfield, and he really sort of bossed that zone. And that's potentially why Barcelona's two you know, advanced midfielders of their three struggled a little bit, because Scott Brown's presence was actually quite good. It was a simple display from Scott Brown, but it was a, a very mature display, and that's what you'd expect from the Celtic captain, that he's finally coming of age as a central midfielder. He kind of knows what's going on. He, he can see it. He can play it back at the right time. And he, he was impressive. Dembele was good. Um, again, should have, should have scored his goals. Scott Sinclair was absolutely anonymous. Very, very poor display from Scott Sinclair. Didn't do enough with the ball. Hmm. Um, and finally, before we let you go, Dave, obviously we're talking about how you've ticked off the bucket list, seeing Messi score live. Of course, going to Celtic Park as well. I mean, what was the atmosphere like at Parkhead? Yeah, it's really good. Uh, they've, um, so they've actually introduced a standing section for, for league games and it's kind of moved the atmosphere so the first time I went to Celtic Park Parkhead sorry with Manchester United and the atmosphere came from their home end um, so it was sort of to the left of the, the away fans you know, it was one of the big stands um, and they've actually moved it to the singing stand and that was absolutely you know it was jumping the, the atmosphere was cracking the, the drums were going everyone was moving in unison it was just really it was quite refreshing to see a a British team looking like a German team in a way. How oh, the atmosphere was so so fresh, um, and hopefully we'll be able to get some some footage of that on the front for a YouTube channel. Oh, nice plug! Uh, you're saying the atmosphere is pretty fresh. How's 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 the weather up there, Dave? It's, it's so cold. Like honestly, my hand I like can't feel me. Holding, I'm holding the phone right now. It's, it's minus three, I think. All right, Dave. On that note, we'll let you go. We'll let you warm. Dave, Dave, how's so Housen? cold. How's Oh, Housen. How are you, Housen? Super. He's super. He's absolutely. He's laughing because he's got his new coat. What was, what was the down in your coat? Five fifty down. So Halson is like is like rolling in it. Like yeah, oh my you, God. you're cold. You're, you're an idiot. Dave, go and get yourself warmed up. Get yourself inside, mate. We'll speak to you uh, on Monday. See you later, chaps. As for the rest of Group C, though, uh, Gladbach drawing uh, with Manchester City at home. City going through to the last sixteen for the fourth consecutive season um so a big mm. achievement for them uh, Barcelona as I said finishing top of the group uh group A the big game in group A tonight Lawrence Arsenal PSG another draw for Arsenal and PSG now stay top with just one game to go what did you make of this one uh yeah it was pretty interesting actually I watched the full game uh really I was a little bit disappointed um, at the reaction to the lineup, I'm always disappointed with the way that Arsenal fans react to Arsene Wenger's lineups. But then during the game, I mean, what they were essentially saying was Wenger fielded a slow side. Um, they wanted to see the pace of Oxley Chamberlain and Walcott on the pitch as well. Uh, there seems to be some problem with Giroud, uh, but I actually 
felt like he led the line quite nicely tonight and interchanged with Sanchez and Ozil not so much. In terms but, of fans not supporting that pick? They yeah, they didn't they don't seem to support the pick. People do seem to have a lot of doubts still over the likes of of a lot of people he's fooling. He's scored nine out of his last 11 shots on target in all competitions. I would have thought they'd have been clamouring for his uh, his inclusion. I mean, that is part of it. But then I think in the same way that I was going to say with City is that I know that people are sort of saying job done, they're through to the next round. There's also sort of a feeling that they don't just want to do it like that. And I think City fans are maybe a little more grateful for the result against uh, Gladbach than Arsenal fans are for a result against the current league uh, champions. Um, and I think... Uh, that to some extent they were proven right when uh, Oxley Chamberlain came on the pitch because he burned a few players with his pace. But you could also say that's because those players were tired from playing a full match, and he might have been so tired from playing a full game as well if he'd started that they wouldn't have had that effect. I also think that they were disappointed. They said they were very disappointed with the people who started at the base, which is essentially Coquelin and whoever else they want to pair with him. But then when Granit Xhaka came on, I wasn't all that impressed with his. Uh, combination play is tackling or many other things and that's sort of the thing with Granite Xhaka is you don't know what you're going to get uh, sometimes which is disappointing because it would feel great if it wasn't like a roll of a dice when you're watching him and imagine that Wenger's got a much better gauge of that but uh, you still got a sense that PSG were the side driving this game forward and Arsenal were looking to counter-attack in some way despite being the home side and despite being the side who um, in the previous game were looking a lot more uh, I know like, <laughs> they were on the back foot away from home against PSG. Cavani, of course, got the goal. Cavani looked good. Um, and then I was a little bit disappointed as well with the way that Arsenal got their penalty. Some people claiming that he wasn't touched. I don't know how conclusive the footage is, um, but Sanchez did go down and they got a penalty. Giroud tucked it away. But then in the melee afterwards, uh, Cavani sort of pushed out uh, in a stupid way at Ramsey. And credit to Ramsey, he didn't really go down, but he still complained about it. Um which is he's perfectly within his rights to do. Um, so maybe Cavani was lucky to stay on the pitch. Hmm. I mean, Cavani's an interesting one because uh, he's got a very impressive scoring record. This season, 21 goals in his last 21 appearances for club and country. But at the same time, he missed a few good chances tonight, Lawrence. I mean, the usual jokes do the, the rounds the on header, Twitter. Though. Yeah. There was the, a beautiful, really lovely glance. Yeah, the chip and glancing header and the chip as well, obviously. Yeah, But the glancing header that he missed... Mm. I mean, it was a guilted, two guilted chances, really, where he was through on the goalkeeper. And I know there was a player recovering. And then another one where he burst into the box and headed it across goal. And it was, you know, a foot wide. Um, yeah, I imagine PSG will be disappointed with that. But it sets the group up quite nicely mm. uh, and means that it goes to the final day as to who's going to finish first. So, Of course, the, the joke doing the round on Twitter, if Cavani had three shots at two-pack, he'd still be alive. Too, too soon, I say. Um, as, it stands, as it stands, though... Um, Arsenal are second, uh, means they'll either get Barcelona, Atletico, Borussia Dortmund, Juventus, Monaco or Benfica, um, as things stand, in the last 16. I mean, uh, do you understand the frustration of Arsenal fans with regards to that, Lawrence? Again, not taking opportunities to perhaps finish top of the group, even though uh, in this season, you know, finishing top might mean you get Real Madrid or Bayern Munich, uh, based on how things went tonight. It's just, I mean, I know that you're in the Champions League and therefore you uh, you know, you justify being there, but it's also the sense of entitlement that Arsenal fans feel. They are playing the champions of um, France last season, uh, and they're playing a very good side, arguably a side who have underperformed this season. Um, but at the same time, I think sometimes they go into games a little overconfident, um, and that sort of end up ends up ruining um, some of the vibe around the stadium as well. 
Um, I understand their frustration. I just always feel like the grass is always greener for some of those fans. And so yeah. maybe it's best not to judge them by social media, but more by what your Arsenal friends say. Uh, but even then, some of my Arsenal friends are real wankers tonight. So. <laughs> Uh, three draws in a row then all competitions for Arsenal so as we say a little bit of frustration there from Arsenal fans they've got Bournemouth at home on the weekend um, Bournemouth only having won one of the last four in the Premier League so obviously Arsenal will be looking to get back to winning ways there elsewhere in Group A in the Champions League Ludogretz and Basel drew 0-0 uh, we already knew Arsenal and PSG were going through so not much impact from that game there no. Group D uh, Atletico Madrid winning 2-0 against PSV. Uh, Diego Simeone's side winning to remain the only team with a perfect record in the Champions League this season. Um, a good finish from Kevin Gamera for the opener, having missed a few good chances earlier in the game. Well, Anton Griezmann added the second. They look quite dominant. Was, is that true? I, I saw maybe 20 minutes of this one. They looked good. Uh, you know, it wasn't the most exciting game, um, I'm not going to lie, but uh, oh, they got the job done. Um, and probably the actual highlight was, did you... Did you catch Yannick Carrasco's skill that was doing the rounds? No, what was that? Oh, it was this, it's the sort of skill that's so embarrassing for the defender. He sits the defender down, oh. you know, leaves them training. He kind of knocked it one side of him, went round the other, but the speed with which he did it and the, the quickness of his feet made it look, well, it looked outrageous to be honest. Um, so I did feel sorry for the poor, the poor PSV right back there. But they go through top of the group because Bayern Munich suffered a shock defeat to FC Rostov, meaning they finished second in yeah. Group D. Um, it was FC Rostov's first ever win in the Champions League. Um, <laughs> continuing by Munich's recent poor form. So they go through second. Uh, in Group B, Besiktas uh, drew Friel with Benfica, coming from three goals down. I mean, in Group B is all to play for. Uh, Napoli and Benfica. There's some unreal goals in those yeah, games as well. incredible. The, the first for Besiktas was what I can only describe as, I think it's a scissor kick, officially. It's not a bicycle kick because it's not above his head. It's kind of side on. And it was absolutely brilliant. And the, the Bayern-Rostov game, firstly, I think you've got to give immense credit to Douglas Costa because his side foot finish was beyond precise. Mm. And then the Rostov striker, is it Armoon? Am I saying that right? The, the man dubbed the Iranian Messi. Well, he may have given some uh, credence to that name because he put Jer Jerome Boateng on his backside tonight in the same way that Messi did. Um, I'm being facetious, I admit. He, he basically cut inside um, and then put a really nice finish on, but just showed real kind of level-headedness in front of goal, which is a, a very good sign for a player that young. And I know I've spoken to a, a few people who kind of watch uh, some of our TFR stuff and things, and they've spoken really highly of him and said that they think he could very easily go on and do some exciting things. As for Group B, as I was saying, Napoli and Benfica both on eight points and Besiktas now on seven. Uh, Benfica playing can, Napoli can, in can that I, final group game. Can I also just say, uh, with Russia by Munich, um, it was 10 degrees. Uh, Minus 10 or 10? I think it was just 10, which apparently is still cold. <laughs> 10 degrees, isn't it? 10 degrees here now. Uh, yeah, but I mean, I'm that's cold. I'm going to assume you meant Fahrenheit, maybe? Or not, no. no that I mean, would be, minus, someone, someone that would be like minus 26. It's pretty yeah, balmy, 10 degrees, <laughs> I also think that would be unusual if I've not heard that many people. I mean, it, maybe it's a talk sport word, but I mean, 10 degrees Fahrenheit <laughs> is uh, very, very different. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> we still use Fahrenheit down here. <laughs> Elsewhere in Group B, uh, Napoli missed the chance to go to to confirm their place. Essentially, in the next round, they drew nil nil with Dynamo Kiev. Seventeen shots didn't manage to take their chances there. Um, yesterday night in the Champions League, the big result, of course, in Group E, Monaco winning two one against Spurs. Um, Spurs crashing out of the Champions League. Poor performance, I think it's fair to say. Um, I don't think any Spurs fan would argue that Spurs deserve to go through. Uh, Monaco were a far superior team, looked very dangerous uh, in attack. Um, Spurs made it far too easy for them, I think it's fair to say, um, especially with that second goal. Uh, Spurs equalised with a penalty, kind of a gift essentially from Monaco. Uh, Deli Alley, you know, delightfully plucking the ball out of the air. But the penalty was... Uh, was a gift for Spurs. Harry Kane dispatched it and 32 seconds after the kickoff, I think, and four passes later, it was in Hugo Lloris's net. Um, and yeah, I did have to feel sorry for Hugo Lloris because he made a couple of uh, incredible saves last night, it has to be said. But for Spurs, obviously a very frustrating night, um, very disappointing to, to go out of the Champions League in that fashion, not putting up much of a fight, has to be said, over the course of the, the campaign. Only one win. In total, and um, kind Quite of a, dramatic about the choices of um, yeah. Uh, Poch. I mean, it's an interesting one. Pochettino decided to rest uh, Jan Vertonghen and Kyle Walker, um, assuming because Danny Rose is suspended for the game at Chelsea the weekend. Jan Vertonghen is likely going to have to play left back with Ben Davies still struggling with injury. So I, I understand the logic there, but I think most Spurs fans were frustrated because obviously. It takes a whole campaign to get into the Champions League. You try so hard to get there and it takes so much effort. And then to get there and at this crucial crunch game that you have to, we, we only had to get a draw last night to, to keep our chance alive and to rest someone as important as Vertonghen uh, and as important as Walker, albeit Walker's form has been slightly patchy the last couple of games. I don't think, I don't think Vimmer and especially Trippier uh, are at that level, essentially. Um, Trippier had a very poor game. I think both he and Vim are uh, capable, uh, capable sort of backups for those players. But I think it does perhaps expose the lack of depth or the lack of quality in the squad the Spurs have. Because... I mean, it's, it's also prob- it's a problem because it, there are very few sides who have the luxury in Europe of being... I mean, by definition, if you're a backup, there's a reason you're not the first choice. And I understand that's disrespectful to some backups because there are some very good third-choice defenders. But... But I understand Vimmer has made some stupid mistakes recently. Mm. But then at the same time, you know, I suppose it's also Pochettino. It's a double-edged sword. You know, it's Pochettino working on the budget that he's got, and people praise him for that. Yeah. You're not going to get like you know Thiago Silva for that, are you? Exactly. I mean, it's, it is a mixture of factors. I think he came out after the game, Pochettino, and said Spurs need more qualities found out uh, to 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 succeed at this level. I think to an extent they were found out in terms of being out of their depth um, because as you say there are certain restraints in terms of who Spurs can buy having said that we did splash out 30 million on on Moussa Sissoko and there is that question mark over the That's transfer unbelievable when you say yeah that, I know right? I, I have to keep saying That's it just really to it. confirm that it's real but there is that those question marks over that transfer oh, activity real. in the summer did they actually improve the squad <laughs> I mean Janssen obviously uh, continues to have a to have a poor time um, in Kudu 
hasn't been given much game time, to be fair to him. Um, but there are those question marks over the transfer policy. I think there's the mixture of, you know, uh, certain players are coming back from injury. They're not 100%. Harry Kane, Deli Alley. Um, certain players are not in form uh, and are sort of struggling to play their way into a, into a bit of a rhythm. So all these sort of factors come together. But at the same time, it wasn't just last night, the Cospers. It was those performances before. I mean, we spoke about the Wembley uh, situation uh, when I went to see them play Leverkusen at home and sort of the problems that poses. But at the same time, I think it, essentially I don't think Spurs are good enough right now with their young squad uh, and with the potential lack of quality in terms of the depth to succeed at the Champions League. I know some people would point and say, you know, that wasn't a particularly hard group. I'd say there was actually a lot of quality there. You saw that from Monaco last night. Uh, we all know Leverkusen are a good team. Um, obviously CSKA now play Spurs at Wembley. Uh, not quite sure if they're going to be fighting to win that game or to lose that game. Obviously third place goes through to the Europa League. It would help to have a good Wembley record, wouldn't it? Um, I don't know if it would help. Um, I think some Spurs fans uh, want to see uh, want to see Spurs in the Europa League and they do enjoy, uh, to a certain extent, uh, being in that competition. But I think a lot think it would potentially hinder um, the league campaign and we're seeing the benefits potentially of of an absence of European football for Liverpool and Chelsea perhaps it would benefit Spurs to uh, to uh, not have European competition either so yeah a disappointing night I'm going to try and to be try not to be too downbeat the one worry for me I mean I wonder what you guys think about this I mean Chris Hugo Lloris was so incredible last night the the worry in the back of some Spurs fans' mind and the, the thoughts on a lot of other fans. Uh, it's similar to when Gareth Bale was sort of, you know, displaying his talent, displaying his quality in his final season at Spurs, you know. Potentially, this player's too good for Spurs, people are saying. I mean, do you think Spurs fans should be worried about losing Hugo Lloris, Chris? I think so. I think because he's been there so long, that's that's the difficulty. And it, I think it was the same with Modric as well, that they reached a point where you were trying to convince him just to stay until the end of the season. In fact, I think he spoke to that effect at some point. He said that him and, and Daniel Levy had an agreement where he would stay one more year and then he would be allowed to go. And honestly, you know, I saw Pochettino talk about that quality in the squad. I think that's the sort of quandary that, that Spurs are locked in at the minute. Is that they have these big aspirations to be potential Premier League winners all this kind of thing. But they're in terms of player acquisition, is to buy a guy like Hugo Lloris, like Marcus, like Bale, and build them up to this superstar. The problem is that you can't get four, five, maybe a few more to that level in the same squad, in the same sort of time frame. You're going to keep losing the one that you do manage to get through, or the two or three, to those already established clubs. And it just seems like Spurs are trapped in a little bit of a vicious cycle at the minute, because mm. every time they get a player of that quality like Bale, like Modric, someone like Real Madrid comes along and says, OK, we'll take him for 40, 50, 60 million. And yes, Spurs get the benefit of the money, of course, that's great. But I'm not sure if they could then go out and buy someone on the same level, even a wrong down, theoretically, for that money. It's it's a very difficult position for them to be trapped in. Right now. I do, the, the one, the, the positive spin on it that I try to put is that he's, He's only 29, which for a goalkeeper is young. So mm. although there may be that desire to, or that thinking to move to a bigger club, to move to a club that potentially uh, will be able to to bring him on as, I think he's 
relatively young for a goalkeeper to not have that itch um, just yet. He's also the club captain and he, and he has spoke before about how uh, he admires Pochettino and how he believes in the project and what Spurs are trying to build. And also, I do wonder who these clubs are that would want to buy Lloris. You look at, say, Manchester United, they've obviously got De Gea. I mean, if a situation arose again with De Gea and Real Madrid, obviously Hugo Lloris would be their first choice but who else out there is there who potentially want to to try and steal Larissa away from Spurs well I mean there's there's a fair few good PSG PSG is a possible uh, one I could, mean you could, could say because that's the thing you've got to think that PSG don't have an uh, well they, they do have French uh, players obviously but the opportunity for them to bring in a French international mm. is something that they're always going to want to do for their own squad balance mm. and I'm going to guess yes because of when he moved Larice will have been classed as homegrown in France, if not homegrown PSG. So again, there, there are enough without wanting to give uh, Spurs fans sleepless nights. There are enough reasons to think that that uh, Larice will have suitors at some point. And and you're right though. I mean, 29 is fairly young, and and I just looked it up while you were talking there. He's been there four years. That's yeah. that's the only thing. He, he, I could very much see them getting to the summer and him saying, "Look, I'll stay one more year. I'll give it the full five years." to see how the project finishes out. Because often often in football, that's what we're talking, is, is five-year plans. Mm. Think... Works so well for QPR, of course. <laughs> I'm going to say that. But, um, but the, it's also, I mean, Adam, why would Lloris now want, not want to go to Monaco? I mean, those guys pumped you twice. Uh, yeah. Um, I mean, the point is, I think you could also flip all of this narrative-wise, and Kristen knows that very well as a journalist, that... You know, it's still a young squad. It fit up. Maybe you know uh, that they have the average youngest squad in the league, and I get that. And there's something very promising about that. And I understand you've already sort of made that point. But you yeah. could also say that maybe Pochettino, therefore, could have um, sort of voiced that point a little more. And I imagine he has within the camp. It is also there are there is also the worry that because of that focus on youth, Pochettino is very much a player uh, in the Bielsa mold not to prelude a documentary I'm making too much right now, but um, what Bielsa requires is a a squad that is very much in the now. And it's arguable to say that this squad needs to win things now whilst it's got the impetus rather than see the momentum go out of this project because people sort of say, well, now the squad's a little too old or, well, these guys should be at their peak because it's very easy to sort of let your eye go off the ball if you're always thinking, well, I'm young and I'm going to come to my peak. You'd argue then that things never come to fruition. And that's somewhat happened in the Champions League this season when things haven't just quite gone right. And that's the, that is the difference between, you know, the, the top managers who can get the, the immediate results. Hmm. I think uh, it's difficult to... I think Pochettino does deserve criticism for this game in terms of uh, maybe you should have played for Tongan and, and Walker, but also... Tactically, um, potentially there was a, a lack of width. I mean, we're struggling this season with a lack of a lack of penetration, a lack of creativity. <sighs> so it's frustrating. It is frustrating, but I think you're right in terms of it's a disappointment, but it's not the complete disaster that some may uh, paint it as. But it, I, I think honestly, though, that's the other slight issue you saw manifest in the summer was. What they tried to do was they tried to bring in some elite-level midfielders, and they simply couldn't get the deals over the line. So, mm. by the time they 
got to the player that they could get in Musa Sissoko, they were overpaying and they were moving into what is the real last few days of the, the transfer window. And by that point, teams have, for the most part, anyone that's semi-organised, have done their business. And consequently, they're not looking to sell their better players. And it just ramped the fee up a, a little bit more. And like I say, I just think for, for Spurs, they need to be a little bit of a, a spotlight put on that recruitment process because at the minute, it, to me, it's not nearly efficient enough. And I don't think it's delivering the results of Pochettino to absolve him from blame, but just say that maybe he's not having quite the tools that he needs. Some reports claimed that it was Pochettino wanted Sissoko. Um, Obviously, there were potential targets before that that they didn't manage to land. Uh, and as you say, Mane. it was a yeah, Mane, uh, Wilfried Zaha is a potentially another one. I mean, you, you could, his his quality and his class is up for debate. But as you say, there was that desperation at the end uh, to bring someone in because we needed options off the bench, someone who's perhaps more direct, a bit of pace, someone who's more aggressive. But yeah, all the uh, the signs say that Pochettino wanted him. It wasn't necessarily Levy. Um, so I think Pochettino's yet to show how Sissoko is useful in the team. I mean, as you say, it's not completely a write-off yet, but I think um, mm. I think a lot of Spurs fans are, are on the verge of, if not already, being ready to, to write him off. That's the one thing you've got to remember about him as well, and I've talked to Loz about this recently for something that will, uh, will come out in due course, is that Pochettino has a little bit of a patchy record with transfers because one thing that I think a lot of people forget is before Coutinho joined Liverpool, Spurs, uh, excuse me, Southampton went really hard for him when Pochettino was there and tried to get the deal done. And it looked like for a good period of time they were going to. And yet, in the same breath, he also signed Danny Osvaldo, who cost that club an absolute fortune to get rid of in the end. And they actually had to let him go for free. So his transfer decisions or his player selections if you like for every bit of gold there's also a good clump of mud in there as well i think that's fair i think that is fair um spurs crash out then uh, monaco uh, go through uh cska are also out after drawing one at home with leverkusen uh draw enough to, for leverkusen uh to be unbeaten in the group um, although there's only one win in there. Um, elsewhere, Group F, Borussia Dortmund beat Leisure Warsaw 8-4. Group F this, and then they just, they just went for it, didn't they? A record-breaking game, Lawrence, for a number of reasons. The highest-scoring game in Champions League history. Mm. Leisure but not the... the biggest margin in the Champions League, I'll just yeah. let you remember on. that one. Get me in. I thought you were going to give me the answer. Well, it was Rafa Benitez's side. Uh, oh, Rafa Benitez. Yeah. Rafa Benitez. Ooh, who was it? It was, a, it was definitely a Rafa Benitez team. Uh, it was a Rafa Benitez side. It was definitely Rafa Benitez in Liverpool. I think they won 8-1. I can't remember the team it was against. You'll forgive me for that. Um, but that side involved Peter <laughs> Crouch and indeed... That's uh, funny. I just, just your vague uh, fact-giving. That, that side involved Peter Crouch... And indeed, the other Ukrainian guy who was mm. number 10, who was... This is a trademark, Lawrence Kristen, McKenna, stat attack. Kristen, come on, come on. Andre um, the guy is... Yes, uh, Andre Warren. Uh, yeah, guy. What about the team? What, who the other team? Can't give a fuck. Oh, yeah. Group F, as we said. Uh, later, the only team in the competition's history to score four goals and lose. And it's also the first time in Champions League history that eight players have scored in one match. 
So pretty sensational game there. Uh, Dortmund, of course, really hitting form now um, after a sort of patchy start to the season. It was eight nil against Besiktas. All right, bloody hell. Blow me. Obviously, Dortmund welcoming back Marco Royce as well after six months out, uh, coming back with a brace. Uh, and they are on course to go through top of Group F now. They just need to avoid defeat at Real Madrid in the final game to ensure they do go through top. Uh, Madrid, of course, secured their place in the knockout stages thanks to a late goal from Karim Benzema, extending their unbeaten run to 30 games. 2 1. Uh, at Sporting Lisbon. Uh, the worrying thing for Zinedine Zidane is Gareth Bale limping off injured. Um, El Clasico in two weeks, so there's a wait to see if he will be fit for that game. Uh, as for Group H, Juventus with a big win at high-flying Sevilla. Uh, Massimiliano Allegri could only name 20 players in his squad. A few big injuries there. No Higuain, no Benatia, obviously no Dybala. Um but the big man Benucci stepped up um, against the Sevilla side yet to concede in the UCL before last night. So a big 3-1 win for them. And we mentioned Moyes Keane at the weekend becoming the first player in Serie A history uh, to be born in the year 2000 to play in the competition. He's now the youngest player in Champions League history uh, to play. Um, he, of course, uh, got the knockdown for, for Benucci's crucial goal. Sevilla... Meanwhile, in Group H, their first defeat means they have to avoid losing by a two-goal margin away to Leon in two weeks to guarantee their place in the last 16. Um, they kept their hopes alive, Leon, with a 1-0 win at Zagreb, thanks to Alexandra Lacazette. And, of course, Group G. Do we say Brave Leicester? Is Brave Leicester applicable? No, mate, no. Are they only, not brave uh, anymore? No, only uh, Celtic are brave. Uh, Champions Leicester? Yeah. 1-2-1 at home against Bruges. Uh, continuing their, the, to lead their double life, Lawrence. Cruising yeah. through to knockout stages with a game to spare by beating Bruges despite being rubbish in the league. They've actually got more points in the Champions League this season than they have in the Premier League. That is one hell of a stat. Yeah, it's it's only because it's only when they play quality opposition that they, they get they, points. Well, quality. Uh, anyway, um, disrespectful, but all right. Now they there's, are. There's Bruges and Copenhagen off the pod tour. <laughs> <laughs> uh, big win for Leicester, though. Um, as you said, uh, they'll be looking to improve their domestic form. Uh, three games before the last sixteen draw comes up, and obviously. Middlesbrough at home this weekend. Their home form is relatively solid um, as opposed to their away form. So they'll be looking to improve there. Uh, and also in Group G, Copenhagen drawing 0-0 with Porto. The Danes can still technically go through, but only if Porto fail to win against Leicester. Right, that is the Champions League wrapped up. Let us know your thoughts at the front three on Twitter. For now, let's go to part two. Let's talk Jurgen Klinsmann. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. 
From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. So, Chris, it was announced on Monday that Jurgen Klinsmann has been relieved of his duties as head coach of the U.S. men's national team and technical director for U.S. soccer. Obviously, the man who led the United States to the last 16 at the 2014 World Cup in Brazil, but they have lost their first two games in their qualifying campaign for the World Cup in 2018. This has been coming, hasn't it? It definitely has. Uh, the, there's no great surprise, I think, that he's gone. The... the I mean, look, yeah, I, I give him credit because I think he handled it very uh, respectfully in terms of he went out with an air of grace and class and, and took to Facebook to thank all of the, the supporters and, and such like for the five years or five and a half years they'd spent together. I think ultimately this boils down to a, a very simple evaluation, which is Jürgen Klinsmann is not a coach that wants to focus on the minute details of things. He very much wants to look at things in a big picture perspective. He wants his players essentially to give him commitment and heart. In fact, he even said at one point, you know, the, the system we play doesn't matter. It's all about the spaces and things like that. Now that, when you put that alongside the likes of people like Pochettino, Guardiola, Klopp, that is so against the grain from a, from a managerial perspective, I think that's why he struggles because you look at Bayern Munich where you had Philip Lahm and Tony Cruz both saying we didn't work on tactics, I didn't learn anything under him, and even you know, recently, I think it was 2014, some of the US players came out anonymously to Sports Illustrated. Again, we don't really do a lot of with you, and it's very much kind of this is us, that's them, go out and get them, don't give them a chance to, to celebrate. It's it's lots of motivation. Now, funnily enough, I think as a technical director, he wouldn't be the worst hire in the world. I think his ability to connect with players um, and is uh, very good. And that's evidenced by the fact that a number of dual nationals committed to the United States, Fabian Johnson, Gideon Zillalam, uh, Julian Green, all players that had some type of future with the German national team opted to represent represent the US. Now, whether that means he should have stuck around, I'm, I'm not too sure, because honestly, I think there was a good number of things that he didn't do in the US while he was there. The system itself needs a lot of reform. I think it's important to acknowledge that as well. The infrastructure is not where it should be for a nation as powerful as the US. Um, but ultimately, in terms of playing to a system and actually getting the most out of it, I don't think Klinsman did that. The, the, the benefits or the, the high points under him can often be explained with a, a little bit of important context. Like, for example, the World Cup. Yes, they get out of the group of death, but that's largely because Portugal imploded and decided to, to throw their tournament away. They also played quite defensively, the US, during that tournament, and they weren't that pretty to watch, and they didn't really take it to teams. When they've had to lead games and take games, they've been so poor. You look at Guatemala um, as a good example. Even Haiti, Haiti outshot them as as recently as last year. And I don't mean seven to six, I mean like twenty-one to six. 
Um, it was really tough watching. So I think, honestly, the US is ready for a change. And I think Klinsman's probably ready for a change. But I'll be surprised if I see him in management anytime soon. Hmm. I mean, as you sort of mentioned, he came out with kind of a gracious uh, farewell message, um, imploring the team to sort of march on, as it were. Um, do you think there's kind of an appreciation for what he's achieved, but uh, at the same time, th- there is the recognition that maybe he's not the, the right man to move it forward? I think it's, I mean, it's a funny one because the the supporters he has are very deeply entrenched in supporting him. And Jamie Trecker wrote something for The Guardian saying that he thinks, you know, US fans could come to regret wanting Klinsman out and hounding him out. Honestly, as much as I respect Jamie, I don't think that will be the case. I don't think there'll come a point where 12 months from now we're saying, Imagine if Klinsman had been given more time. I think what he did do is he raised the profile of American soccer and more specifically the US men's national team. He he put them on a slightly bigger pedestal and a slightly bigger uh, position in terms of world football. How you actually quantify that, though, is quite difficult. And whether you allow him to continue off the back of that, again, I'm not convinced by that either because, look, not only did they lose to Mexico, which is a fierce rivalry, they were absolutely humped by Costa Rica. Now, Costa Rica are no slouches. They are a very well-organised, I think, a very aggressive team. The problem you have within saying that, though, is that Costa Rica has a very clear and defined identity. You know what kind of team you're going to face when you go to San Jose and play them, in the same way that you know exactly how they're going to run down the sides, they're going to use wing-backs to, to good effect. You know where their strengths are, more importantly. You can't necessarily say that with the US at this point. There's a real ambiguity about how they play. And look, I'm someone who watches them fairly regularly, and I can't think the last game of theirs I missed, to be quite frank. And yet, really, when I try and boil it down to this is how they play, it's often speed, quick transition, pretty direct. Those are all kind of buzzwords, really. They're not they're not something you could fill a, a textbook with. And I think that's the problem is that the US where it is now, it needs more intricacy. It needs more details of footballing nation. It can't keep getting by on, well, you know, blood and thunder and run at them hard because that's what they were doing in the 90s. That's what they were doing at USA 94 when they were just trying to out, out muscle teams and outplay them. And yet saying that, 95, the Copa America, they go and beat Argentina 3-0, not just because they outfought Argentina, but because they actually outplayed them as well. And I would advise anyone who is is kind of unsure of the you like to know more to to actually go and watch the the game against argentina from copper america 95 where they beat them 3-0 because they played some pretty slick stuff that night. it wasn't always brilliant but again it was pretty slick against a team that had simeone and batistua and some pretty established argentine internationals so i think at this point the u.s just needs a little bit more detail it's got a framework i think klinsman's done some good but maybe not as much as his salary suggested he should. Well, it also just strikes me as a very similar thing to uh, a lot of the routes that America um, has taken in the past, that you know people do disagree on such large, large things. Um, and arguably now, trying to make an identity um, with so many different chefs um, mm. is, is tricky. And I, th- I do also think Klinsman suffered from that at times, having... A few too many people who thought they were chefs, and arguably in America, you know, there is a blogosphere and a you know a, a bubble 
which can sometimes be a little bit bitchy um, and not a particularly nice place to be. And I think at times he's also suffered from that. I think what you've got to remember with this nation is in its vastness, there is so much difference. As, as much as we talk about it being the United States, it is 50, I would say, small countries, to, to be honest. The more, the more time I spend here, the more I see the difference in people. And that also applies to f- soccer here, because on the one hand, you have people who, and, and I don't think they're, they're entirely wrong, saying, look, we don't even have promotion relegation. We don't have all of these important cornerstones. How do you expect anyone in Klinsman's position to get anything when the system with which he works in is so dysfunctional? I, I, can, I can see that, and I can certainly take elements of it and agree with it, but I don't think it's as, as simple as that. I think, honestly, this is a layered and complex uh, issue. I mean, one of the things I think that, that maybe doesn't get enough traction is the the implementation of, of Latin Americans. I think there's a huge proportion of this country that is underrepresented and, more importantly, is not intentionally, but for whatever reason, is ignored because they're not being given the right platforms to show their talent. Guys well, you like certainly will see that under went, the next manager, who's definitely pro-foreigners. Well, this is the thing. I mean, you know, you, you make a fantastic point there about Bruce Arena, who's, who's come in and replaced him. He's dialed back those comments significantly in the last few days, which I find interesting because... Backpedalling since he got into the White House. That's, un, that's not... Having... <laughs> well, the thing is, having spoken to Bruce um, once or twice, he so is... Coach-elect, you mean, Chris? <laughs> um, he is a very strong character in the sense that when he thinks something it doesn't tend to change that often. So I've mm-hmm. got to think that something has really influenced his views. I, again, I don't think he's someone that's gone in and has tried to pander to the audience and pander to Sunil Galati. I think he's genuinely had a, a, a realisation over time, as we all do, that some of the, the dual nationals have a, a genuine heart to it. And, and realistically, as long as you have an American passport, which is something he said, and I, I'm paraphrasing him slightly, as long as you have an American passport, then you should be considered. There are certainly players, I think Timothy Chandler is perhaps the biggest candidate of somewhat uh, a player that was a dual national and didn't always seem committed to the programme and didn't seem desperate to represent the US whenever he could. Players like that need to be removed, but I don't think that has anything to do with his dual nationality as much as I just don't think he has, has the greatest character. What do you think, Chris, uh, are the, the sort of challenges facing Bruce Arena now? I think he has to give the team a little bit of an identity, applying identity more importantly. Um, there are certainly players within that pool that, have very defined positions and roles and and the benefits of the team when you put out the best 11 is very clear. Guys like DeAndre Edlin can really open up a field and cause a lot of trouble in the final third. Michael Bradley, I think, when given the right surroundings, can be a very good number six that can really open the field with his passing and orchestrate things. You've then got guys like Benny Failharver and Sasha Kleschen who are, again, very good ball players. So if you put those three, Bradley, Clashton, Failharbour in midfield, you've potentially got three conductors in, in the heart of things that could give the, the US possession again. It could give them a team that actually looks to hold on to the ball and can do that and can start to 
string things together and, and build up neat little interplay. Then you start to put the other pieces in there. Does Josie Altador start up top? And if he does, who do you put behind him? Do you put Question behind him? Because honestly, Altador, I think, has only ever worked when he's had a dedicated creator behind him, someone who's willing to to not only open up space for him to run into, but also play him into space so he can take shots himself. Those are the things that Bruce Arena needs to work out. I think anything past the minutiae of youth teams and structures and, and everything surrounding the team, that will have to come in time. Because right now they've got a really big game in March, which sounds so far away, but I guarantee it's not. It's, it is very much creeping up on the, the horizon there. And he needs to get the team ready. And he won't have a huge amount of time. He'll have the the January camp, which is his nickname, Camp Cupcake, is normally you call a lot of domestic players in. After that, it's very much go time and they can't afford another slip-up. Uh, there is a, there's obviously an expanded idea there. I think America does almost suffer from um, the, um, I don't know how to put it, the luxury at times of, um, it's not a luxury, but I, I think, how can I phrase this? There is an abundance of football interest in America and that mm. could be considered a luxury by some people. But I think at the same time, it can also manifest, manifest itself as a huge argument for authenticity. And in that race for authenticity within the footballing space in America, a lot of people are willing to put down other ideas, not collaborate, um, become more introspective, um, sort of uh, more centric around their one idea and push for that. And I understand that. We see that with the vehemence with which people argue pro-rel, those sort of things. Um, and I know to some extent, I think uh, Klinsman has become somewhat of a victim of that. I think he's challenged a few people in the hierarchy that probably don't like it. Um, and I also think that uh, critical times, you know, it's very easy in the, in the early days to shape a few things and be like, sure, well, we'll change a couple of things here, a couple of things there. When it comes down to changing a structure and you know, maybe taking that leap of faith, I think at times the USA is forsaken the guy that they put at the top of that and i understand their skepticism um but at the same time i think some people in that camp in those camps have shot themselves in the foot as vague yeah as I, th I, I, I think you make a good point about his questioning of people i think certainly he's he's posed some strong questions and he's certainly given opportunity for introspection with a lot of people i i think the the addendum to that is his media handling style wasn't always the easiest. And actually, he could be very patronizing and dismissive. Yeah. And it wasn't always justified. And and look, I wrote something for, for Yahoo this week about him and why people calling for him to get the England job do not know what they're getting themselves in for because it would not work at all. In fact, I think it would be uh, an absolute car crash of an appointment. And one of the reasons Absolutely. is his media handling style would not go down well in England at all. Uh, the best example I can think of, and it always jumps to the front of my mind, is someone asked him why Benny Failharbour was being omitted from the US men's national team squad consistently. He had 15 assists, 10 goals last year, was really dominating MLS from a midfield perspective, one of the best. And Klinsman just kind of looks and says he's behind people on the depth chart. Like, that's that's not really an explanation. And I think... In a country like England, where we really demand answers and we demand clarity, Klinsman doesn't really care if you gain clarity from his answers. He's answered your question. That's it. Be happy. Go away with it. I mean, to some extent, I see that. And I do see, um, how can I put it? 
I do see, I, uh, to some extent, I do also see the um, entitlement with which the press approaches their, you know, people at the very top. And I understand you have to question authority, but then I, I uh, and we'll probably come on to this in a minute when we're talking about uh, any other business, but the, the way that the, question, the press asks questions now, there are so many different, um, very clear um, ideas out there. You know, uh, journalists are developing their own ideas. They want their own uh, articles. They want their own quotes. They want them to serve their own purposes. I think there are times where there are too many people pulling in different directions. I think Klinsman was very much a victim of his own naivety thinking that he could go from what has been a successful system in Europe with Germany and a couple of other places and essentially do the same in the States, almost, you know, to the same blueprint. Um, and I think he suffered from that more than other people did because, you know, a journalist can write whether things are going badly or things are going well. But ultimately, if things are going well, then they'll get the chance to write a lot more because the eyes on it are, um, are a lot more. Uh, unless, of course, things are going badly. But then what I'm saying is in the long run, they'll get more eyes on their articles if things are good for US soccer. But in the short run, they're going to get a lot of traffic to their website when things are bad. So I guess it's sort of the short-term payoff, which is maybe the problem of a lot of the US system, which is a lot of it is, uh, as with most people's countries now at the moment, but, but especially with the blogosphere in America, people are desperate to get clicks and those sort of things. So I sometimes wonder whether the criticism of and the, the, the bubble of American soccer was whipped up somewhat by the fact that it um, it it was spurred on by massive massive need for clicks and uh, people to to you know get their articles out there. Yeah, I think you know you talk about the German Revolution thing as well. I think that's sold him into a lot of meetings and and got him through a lot of doorways. Absolutely. And yet, Tony Cruz is is very passionate in saying that he doesn't think he had anything to do with the Revolution, Klinsman. That it was yeah. it was other people and look there's a lot of kind of division on that I think Klinsman as a person is polarizing I think he divides opinion massively and that applies to the U.S. men's national team I think that applies to Germany as well and the idea that actually it was Yogi Lowe who was really steering the boat for a lot of time it was just Klinsman that was stood on deck taking the plaudits yeah I mean you could also completely flip that and say well yeah then maybe he's been found out here that he took from the surface of that German system uh, and thought he knew what the blueprint was and ultimately you know he, he's not been able to apply that here so whether it was him that was the you know the um at the crux of that or maybe he was an overseer or whatever maybe tony cruz didn't see him at the coal face and therefore he was saying he wasn't one of the practical people could be any of those things um but ultimately you know he, he has been found to fail in inverted commas in uh, in the states right it is time for part three, any other business. This is the section where we get a chance to talk about an issue or a debate that maybe we can't stop thinking about that we want to get off our chest and we haven't had a chance to discuss otherwise. Um, I'll go first. It's, a, it's an interesting perspective, I think, on the whole Wayne Rooney debate. Um, yeah. The first thing I can't stop thinking about is... Are you sure that you can get a different perspective? I'm pretty sure that we've well, actually completely rotated it three times. I feel like we're... We've literally we've done flipped a full it. We've done it. The you know, insider. But one interesting thing, um, I can't remember whether uh, I saw it on Monday Night Football or wherever I saw it, but they were basically comparing. We we're talking about the professionalism of Wayne Rooney and maybe how that's lacking in certain areas. It's lacking compared to 
say, the ultimate professional, Ryan Giggs, who, as he was coming towards the end of his career, sort of, you know, brought in certain little changes to prolong uh, his footballing life. And one of them uh, that Giggs revealed in an interview, is actually a few years ago to Gary Neville, um, was that one of the changes he made was basically saying that he didn't put butter on his toast because he knew that would affect his performance in the next game. So that as an athlete, he knew just having one little... One little sliver of butter spread on his bread. That's no good, mate. Can't be doing that. Who told that, him that? I mean, who told him that? That, that? This is what he has said in response to when Gary Neville said, um, you know, it's, it's sort of been picked up lately because of the Rooney situation. It was back in 2013, I think, this interview. But that was like the one little nugget from it. Ryan Giggs like, you know, I made a few changes, going to bed an hour earlier, obviously not putting butter on my toast. It's just that little, that's the sort of the length that Ryan Giggs would go, I just, I can't stop thinking about. <laughs> yeah, how much is he having? A whole loaf, just a whole loaf, just a whole I mean, lure Ryan, pack on there as well. Some people would say, some people, yeah, I mean, some people would also say, you know, just go for margarine or at the I same time. I that was fascinating in terms of that's how the level of detail or the level of dedication Ryan Giggs would go to in order to prolong well, we his career. Players, right? Whereas... Someone like Wayne Rooney. <laughs> yes, of course, extracurricular activities. Um, but of course, That's someone like Wayne Rooney. Wrapping a stick of butter and just sticking it on top of the bread. <laughs> <laughs> but Wayne Rooney obviously came under a lot of fire this week um, for his lack of professionalism. And I thought what was interesting was, I mean, guys, if you listen to this podcast before, you know I'm a big fan of the Second Captain's podcast, the best football podcast out there. Second best? No, it's the best. Um <laughs> Obviously, the the main guy on there, Ken Early, writes for the Irish Times. He wrote an interesting article, which I thought was kind of an interesting perspective on it. Essentially, he was sort of pointing out the sort of the moral outrage around the situation was perhaps a touch hypocritical. Why? So he's essentially saying, basically, the argument boils down to, right, Wayne Rooney is, he's not doing his job or he's he's impacting his job negatively by drinking. That's why it's such an outrage that Wayne Rooney would would go and do this. He's a pro, he's a physical professional athlete. Him drinking to that extent and behaving in this manner affects his performance, affects his status as an athlete, and therefore he should be criticised for that. But as Ken Early tries to point out in his article, surely we're all guilty of that. You know, whenever we have a drink or we we go into work hungover and we can't function and we spend the whole day unable to to concentrate or unable to do our job are we not guilty of the same crime that Wayne Rooney's been lambasted for this is the the, the closing paragraph from Ken's uh, article in the Irish Times which we'll link to in the description he said uh, think of that picture of Rooney at the wedding with his drooping eyes and wine stained lips any of us who drinks can think of a few pictures of us looking a bit like that if we got to thinking about what it meant we might start to feel bad better to point and laugh at Irish Wayne the son uh bizarrely seemed to point to his Irish heritage as a reason why uh, Wayne had uh, got himself in this situation and reassure ourselves that at least we're better than him and maybe have another drink because at least we know that when we do nobody takes any notice I disagree all right um I also think I mean yeah he's more than welcome to his view but I also think there's a huge fallacy in that that the part of the reason people are so outraged is because Wayne Rooney's wages are so high and that he has made massive demands in the past uh, on this club to reach the high standards mm. that he says he will want to reach. Mm. Also, that drinking in the office and going in with a hangover is 
very different. I understand it loses companies and we all see, it loses companies a lot of money. And we all see those statistics every year about people all going into work hungover and those sort of things. He speaks about his own high standards and speaks about being a top athlete. He, he is more than happy to be pictured in that way. Um, I, I mean, uh, to, for some reason I have had a lot of sympathy for Wayne over the last week because, mm. you know, I do think it was very harsh. And at the same time, I don't know if he was told he could go out by the manager. And if he was, then he probably did speak with someone about it. And he probably knew when pictures are taken that those sort of things could happen. At the same time, that same night, there were two other footballers who were going to a strip club. And both of them came from a club which has painted itself as a, a family, wholesome club, uh, which is Liverpool under Jurgen Klopp. And they're, you know, they're two players who have been revolutionised, allegedly, under Klopp which is Lalana and Henderson. I think there are always going to be people who will detract and I think there are always going to be people who um, add to your cause. But I've, I've got to say I disagree with the conclusion of the article because he is an athlete. And the point is that, you know, I understand the effects on your brain. But it, you know, there, there's a difference. He's, he's chosen to portray himself like that. He's taken media deals. There's no one working in an office out there who's taken a media deal and gone you know, God, I want to be in on this and built, you know, arguably there are, you know, I, it works out sometimes, but yeah. you can see what I'm saying. I think the article falls down. It's a fallacy to say that. I would highly recommend reading the article. I don't necessarily agree with it to an extent. And I think he's less, I think he's more trying to highlight the hypocrisy as opposed to saying Wayne Rooney is completely excused. And uh, I understand that the, the factors are different in terms of the wages, the sort of the different... The different values of... of yeah, of I know the, the, the values are different, but he's trying to say at the core, the sort of the, the, the faux outrage and the moralising around it seems a little hypocritical when, you know, everyone's guilty of it. And as you sort of point out, why is Wayne Rooney receiving this 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 criticism when... Like you say, Henderson and Lalana seem to have have well, because, their behavior. Well, well, because first of all, there is no uh, visual evidence. I think of it's the pictures. It's the pictures. Um, uh, there, it's also that I think uh, it doesn't quite fit the narrative uh, that a lot of journalists want to put out there. Yeah. Yet, although in time that may still come back to bite Lalana and Rooney, because <laughs> papers at the same time I listened to the Ball, Long Ball Street podcast, and they were saying that there are uh, women out there in this article who have said, oh, Lalana's L- changed since he since got he... really good at football. Mm. Mm. Um, I, think... I don't know what that means. It also means there are people who are there to stab you in the back. But also at the same time, um, I can't quite remember where I was going with that. But the essentially, you know, Liverpool and Manchester United both build themselves up in a certain image. Mm. What I would say is that's not the be all and end all. Don't, you know, I think journalists are going for this because it's easy fodder, and that should that should be the main argument. I think that's a great hypocritical thing. Is you know, it seems to be the lazy journalists who can't be bothered to do the proper research on the corruption within football and go for the lowest hanging fruit who are making this as an argument. And that's maybe where I feel the hypocrisy comes. And I would also probably count myself as someone who you know isn't isn't working at the height of football or you know um, the height of journalism. And I do feel a sense of shame about that at times. Hmm. I just thought it was an interesting, I don't necessarily 100% agree with it, but it's an interesting way to approach it. And I think, as you say, it gets to the, the core of perhaps um, the the lack of the lack of integrity in the journalism itself. I mean, we, we've, seen that, we've seen that over the last week with, with Donald Trump. Uh, you know, I mean, I know that we keep going back to this on this podcast, but Donald Trump has also... Honestly, honestly, I, I think... You have to finish that sentence. Go on. 
He's gone, mate. Sorry, I was oh. going to say, I think this is a two, it's, it's a two quote grief fallacy, basically. It's, I, I, look, I respect Kennelly a lot. I think his, his work is very good. Personally, I think the issue with Wayne Rooney is the squandering of potential. That's what people take issue with, and, and maybe it doesn't always come to the in those words. Essentially, this is someone that was expected to redefine a generation of football, and I don't think he has. I think he peaked for at a very young age, mm. around no, no, 2004. Totally. And because of that, people are holding him to the high standard that, as Lawrence Riley says, that he held himself to, that That's... he made money from in the in the press so i think there's a there's obviously as i said at the start there's a clear distinction between the lengths ryan Giggs will go to to just add on a few more years of his playing career as opposed to what rain rooney's doing at such a a crucial time in his own career um you could also say that i mean there there are different ways to approach that as well you know wayne rooney is um you know maybe you just appreciate a shooting star for what it is you know oh yeah Uh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, listen. Enough of Rooney. Enough of my business, Lawrence. Uh, what are you thinking about this week? What can you not stop? Uh, not stop focusing on. Um, I mean, there's there's quite a lot to focus on. Obviously, the whole uh, thing at Liverpool. Uh, I've I've been interested uh, in Zlatan Ibrahimovic over the past week. I still don't think there's enough um, spotlight on him, and I was happy to hear that uh, Manchester United are extending his contract. Um, one thing I am interested in. Uh, I'd be interested to know what. Uh, other people think about this I will be interested to uh, what, what I, we are working on is something to do with uh, the rise of Manchester United and how they sort of got themselves into this position and how much it serves them right now um, I was sort of hoping that Dave would be here tonight but he obviously isn't um, and maybe there's a conversation to be had around United building themselves up to this size and possibly at the moment it isn't serving them very well um, but I was very happy to hear the um, extension of Ibra's contract because it means that he won't be going to MLS yet. Yet. Um, how did he? How did he announce it? Didn't he uh, announce it in classic uh, Zlatan fashion, or didn't he phrase it in his in his classic way? Uh, how did Zlatan announce it? Because I actually heard it from Manchester United. You know what? I, I probably read it. Um, as Mourinho saying Zlatan is happy, he is committed, and he is loving life at Manchester United, and assumed it was Zlatan talking in third person, as he as he yeah. as he tends to do. Um, yeah. It's an interesting one. I'm just I'm just still hoping he doesn't score those. Was it twenty goals? Did I say? Yeah, yeah. This goals. is what I think will spur him on. Yeah, this is this is the the start. Um, Chris, anything you would like to discuss? The the thing that has been catching my eye is Henrik Larsson. Um, He spent a year in his playing career at Helsingborg before exploding onto much bigger things Um, and actually got promoted in that year. He then returned in 2015 to coach the team um, along with his son, Jordan Larson, and they were relegated, I believe, this week um, after losing their playoff game. To, to try and s- secure their, their future in the Allsvenskan. It ends a 23-year run for Helsingborg in the top flight and essentially brings a, depending on whether you support Helsingborg or not, I imagine, a beautiful stroke, horrible end to the circle of life. Did you the say... The circle of life. Wow. Um, great stuff. Uh, okay. And he's already left. Uh, and he's gone. <laughs> uh, Adam, but, is, they, but, is, but Jordan is still there. Okay. Um, 
And it's, See you later, son. <laughs> it, it, to be honest, it doesn't look like getting any better for Jordan because basically the Helsingborg fans were furious at being relegated, as you can understand, and took to the pitch. One of them tried to square up to uh, Henrik. That didn't go so well. No blows were exchanged, but Henrik was, was ready to, to throw down, um, as they say in the States. Uh, whereas You've changed. Jordan was kind of... I think he was a little bit shell-shocked, bless him. He's such a young guy. And the the ultras or the fans or whatever essentially stripped him of his shirt um, and then he was allowed to walk away. And Henrik said that had he known what was going on, he would have fought them himself. Wow. What a man. What a father. Oh, it's all well and good saying that after the fights happened, isn't it? Yeah. Um, anyway, guys, uh, on that note, that is the end of Thursday's Front Free Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, do leave your reviews on iTunes if you enjoyed the podcast. It helps other people find the front three. Uh, until Monday, when we'll be back with our Premier League and European review, where can the listeners, where can the whole find you, Chris? At K-H-E-N-E-A-G-E. Lawrence? Uh, at Lozcast, L-O-Z-C-A-S-T. You can also find me at Statman Dave. Mm. Mm. Adam, you. what about you? Oh, you can find me at Adam Boltwood on Twitter. Do come and follow me there to see me moan about Spurs, as I'll no doubt be doing on Saturday. We're also going to have a little, I should say, we're going to have a little bonus pod going Ooh. up this Saturday. Um, we're going to try something a little bit new. We're going to sort of do a little interview um, with, a, with a friend of ours, uh, Rory Jennings from the Chelsea fans channel we're going to talk in depth uh, about Chelsea about the club about his life as a Chelsea fan um, ahead of uh, obviously the big game the battle of the bridge part two um, on Saturday um, so do check it out we're going to try and do more of these as we go along um, more sort of interviews and more sort of in-depth discussions with, with different people uh, either friends of ours or people we sort of respect in the in the game and around the around football um, so if there's anyone you want to see us interview, let us know on Twitter, at The Front Free, anyone you want to see get involved. And if you've got any questions for Rory, we'll tweet this out later, but do get them in uh, as well and we will put them to the man. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Until then, until Saturday, I should say, have a great week and have a great Thanksgiving if you're in the US. 